This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is another fellow truth seeker who challenges conventional views about 9-11, Mars, chemtrails, anti-gravity, and other controversies. Andrew Johnson will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, the Veritas private chat room and the Manticore forum. Just head on over to our website, VeritasShow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. And don't forget, we are still selling the 8GB brushed metal case USB drive containing all of Season 1 and a lot of bonus material, like FBI and CIA, the classified files on Tesla, Von Braun, and Einstein. 
UFO government files supplied by Sergeant Clifford Stone, a lot of survival ebooks, and all the music for season one. Check it out. Go to the website, VeritasShow.com, and click on the Veritas store. You will see how we filled this futuristic device to the limit. And if you need to get in touch with me, go to our website and click on the contact button or on Facebook. And to those who are submitting guest suggestions via email, I'm no longer accepting guest suggestions via email. Why? Because they get lost with the number of emails that I get on a daily basis. Instead, there is a guest submission form at the forum, which also is a benefit to members. Only members can submit guest suggestions at this time. And now, get ready to challenge conventional wisdom by discussing areas that mainstream media is instructed not to cover. Why is information and the truth covered up and muddled up, especially in relation to 9-11? Why so many thousands of pilots flying every day have not commented on chemtrails? Why is the EPA and other worldwide environmental protection agencies ignoring independent tests on air and water quality? We will also be discussing the 2008 incident where BBC cameras filmed two Swedish sisters throwing themselves into traffic on the M6 in England. They survived and threw themselves into traffic one more time, were hit and survived again. This is one of the most bizarre stories you will ever hear. This and much more with Andrew Johnson, who's coming up next. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. right here on the very test show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com if you hear a song you like go over to our homepage veritasshow.com click on the guest look up the song and download it you can even buy the group's cds in many cases right there at jamendo.com This is Dr. Judy Wood, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Andrew Johnston grew up in Yorkshire, England, and graduated from Lancaster University in 1986 with a degree in computer science and physics. He has mainly worked in software engineering and software development for most of the last 20 years. He has also worked full and part-time in lecturing and tutoring, in adult education. Now he works for the Open University, part-time tutoring and assessing students, while occasionally working freelance on various small software development projects. He became interested in alternative knowledge in 2003, soon after discovering Dr. Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project. He has given presentations and written and posted a number of articles on various websites about 9-11, 7-7, Mars, chemtrails, and anti-gravity research, while also challenging some of the authorities to address some of the most compelling data that is available. His website, www.checktheevidence.com. And directly from England, 
I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, Andrew Johnson. Hello, Andrew, and thank you for being on Veritas. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Mel. Thank you very much for asking me to come on and speak with you. It's my pleasure. And Andrew, here's why I wanted to have you on the show. You are good at seeing how everything fits together, and especially how the cover-up works and how it is held in place. Tonight, I want to talk about all of this and how to get people to see through the games. Our survival may depend on our ability to see what is going on. You have experience with assessment of students and also computer programming experience. Put those together and you have someone who can draw a flowchart of how things really work. But first, Andrew, give us some background of yourself, where you grew up and what circumstances motivated you to research all of these topics. Okay, yes. Um, you know, it's one of those things, following on from your introduction, I think, it's almost like life prepares you for certain things. And I feel that I've been prepared for this time in my life. Um, you know, the things that have happened to me and the sort of things I've ended up doing seem to have guided me to this point. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a large family. So, um, you know, I'm the youngest of nine. And uh, that kind of set me into a position of where um, I had a lot of people sort of telling me what to do and, and what to think. And, <laughs> you know, they'd, they'd done all, all the things before I had. So they'd, you know, been to school, they'd uh, gone to work and, and done all these things and and told me that life was like this or life was like that. And um, so I, I, I was kind of mentally sort of uh, fighting that in some ways, I suppose. Fighting is not qu quite the right word, but I, I wanted to find my own way through things. And I think I did do that. Um, for example, the sister and brother above me, they went to a particular secondary school. Um, but uh, from what I heard, heard them saying, they, they didn't really think it was that great. So when my mum gave me the choice of which school I wanted to go to, I, I, I opted to go to a different school, uh, which was a, um, a grammar school, as we, as we call it here. Because I you know, managed to sort of do uh, the pass the test to get to the grammar school so i went to that one and um so you know i i i'm sort of sort of from a fairly modest background we we you know essentially call it as a working class family here in this country the expression that we would use um and um i developed an interest in computing um and i my brother and me built my first computer when i was 16 it was called a ZX81. It was one of the first uh, computers with, uh, I think it had four silicon chips in it, and it did everything that a computer should do. Um, and um, by the time I'd started university, I'd already sort of taught myself how to program this thing, and, uh, and uh, you know, I'd even sold some of the programs that I'd written to somebody who'd advertised uh, for, you know, wanting programs to distribute on a, on a tape. Uh, you know, and they gave me some royalties for those things, um, for the programs that I wrote. So I'd made an early start on that. And um, this know, is I, what I just, year? This was in, um, the, the, we built the computer in 1981. Right. And uh, then, then the I got the second computer the following year, which was a more advanced version. And then I went to college in, uh, I went to university in 1983. Um, which kind of expanded on what I'd already taught myself in many areas and added a few new areas. Um, 
so that put me into a sort of technical sort of background really you know I'd, I'd always been interested in science um you know whilst whilst all that had been going on in my life i'd um also had a my first uh, sighting of a what we would call a ufo obviously um when i was um about nine or ten years old and i'd seen these two star-like objects performing you know sort of aeronautics around one another and that was that was um, just when i was coming out of a youth club that i used to go to and there was another witness my friend actually witnessed the same thing and we both saw these little starry objects flying around in the sky and i you know at that time i knew it couldn't be a planet or a you know a meteor or a shooting star or anything because i'd read a few books on astronomy some children's books you know and uh, and it was perfectly comfortable at what i'd seen um so i suppose certain parts of the stage were being set for fairly early on um, I ended up going in, as you mentioned in the introduction, into uh, software development, mainly working in uh, sort of microelectronics-related software, which is uh, sort of things like uh, worked on a, a robot controller for a factory robot. Uh, that was one of the first projects that I worked on, uh, developing some software which controlled the uh, motor uh, system of the robot servo control system. Um, and then I moved into telecommunications uh, for a couple of years, and we were working on a. It was really an, an early, early sort of system which um, did what's called packet switching, which is essentially what uh, the internet runs on now. It's a, it's a process of what's called packet switching at one level, um, which is what's behind the uh, you know uh, internet, the internet protocol. Um, and then, I, and then I moved on um, to. Um, a project developing a telephone, an advanced digital telephone, and we worked on that for about four years on and off. Uh, that that project never succeeded in the end for various uh, reasons. And um, then I moved into the area of computer graphics uh, for, a, for, for a couple of years. No, that was actually a year. Um, and then I moved into mobile data, which was using uh, PDAs. Uh, personal digital assessment assistance and that sort of thing um so and it was involved that's when the gsm phones started to come in around 1995 1996 when the gsm phones were becoming prevalent so i learned a bit about mobile phone technology at that time and how they work um and um uh, you know, I'd, I'd had another UFO sighting in 1990, an unusual thing, which looked actually looked like um, uh, a luminous insect. But I, I did, I, that was in England, and we don't really have any luminous insects in England like the one I saw. So I, I don't know what that was. Um, it was way off in the sky as well, not down, not down near the ground. Um, and um, so it was really probably then 2003 when my next uh, sort of uh, thing came about, which was discovering the Disclosure Project, Dr. Stephen Greer. And um, having seen this, um, you know, I knew, I absolutely knew there was a UFO cover-up because to have an event of this scale, uh, which I only discovered in 2003, which was, of course, two years after it had happened. It was just about two years uh, after it happened. I discovered it in May 2003. And I went onto the BBC website and I'd searched for this disclosure project. And I did actually find an article which was headed uh, UFO Spotters Slam Cover-Up. And that was the title on this very short, glib BBC article about the Disclosure Project press conference. 
And I hardly can considered uh, some of these witnesses uh, UFO spotters, you know, these people who've been working in an underground bunker, um, checking that the, uh, the Minuteman missile was ready to uh, wipe out a Russian city. I'd hardly call this sort of person a UFO spotter. You know, it was a bit more significant than that. So you can immediately see, A, that this wasn't widely reported, certainly not in this country, and B, when it was reported, it was re essentially misreported. It was misrepresented and, and essentially misquoted as to what it actually was. And this is one of the key things where the media um, kind of get away with what they're doing um, in that they misquote, misrepresent and omit things. And in, 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 when you look at it, it's actually quite skillful the way that it's done. Um, and so... Uh, it was having discovered the disclosure project, I, I made the decision at that time because I knew there was a cover up that I was going to have to work in my own way to break the cover up. In other words, it was my responsibility to essentially um, become the media, if you will. Uh, and, 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 and I decided to get myself, um, you know, I bought one of these LCD projectors, you know, for plugging into a computer and I already had a laptop because that was I was using one, you know, as part of my work at that time for some of the software development that I was doing um, for, for, for other work that I was doing. And I basically downloaded the press conference video and I it was, uh, you know, the, if people remember this thing, it's two hours long. Yes. And quite interesting, but that's rather too long to present at most meetings. You know, you really want something that's half an hour or an hour. So I um, I edited it down to uh, an hour version and a half hour version. And I took this thing around to various uh, uh, groups who were interested in having a speaker. You know, I, I, we had a local uh, database of, uh, you know, women's clubs and business, retired business people clubs. We call them Probus clubs here. And I wrote to them and I said, you know, do, do, do you want a speaker to come and, you know, uh, talk about the subject of UFOs as that's what it gets put under. And, um, you know, I probably did about uh, 10, or 10 or 12 of those. And, um, you know, I, I, I got my travel expenses paid for those on most occasions. And if, if I got any fee for doing it, I would at the time I was donating that to the Disclosure Project because they had a you know a donation page. And I thought it was only fair to, you know, uh, put some funds back into it to to, um, to you know, further its aims. And, um, you know, I probably I probably probably did put in about, I don't know, maybe a, over a period of a couple of years. I was doing that for probably 18 months, a couple of years, you know, on and off just now and again. And probably got, a, you know, a couple of hundred bucks, something like that over that time and uh, sent that back to them. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, when I was getting towards uh, the end of doing that, really, I kind of ran out of uh, uh, people to show it to locally. You know, I couldn't really travel very far um, because of my family commitments and stuff, you know, because, um, you know, my children at that time were quite young. Uh, they're a bit, little bit older now, obviously, but, um, you know, they had that sort of commitment to deal with. Um, so, uh, and then I started uh, coming across other articles, and I remember reading an article which mentioned this phrase of uh, state-sponsored state terrorism. And... Um, and I was thinking, oh, what's that? That's that's I've never heard of that before, and it, and it and it highlighted some of the uh, anomalies with the official story of 9/11. And this is sort of probably late 2003, early 2004, or something that sort of time period. Um, and uh, so it pointed out some of the anomalies with the story, 
And then I think I came across a film by uh, George Humphrey, which was called 9-11, The Great Illusion. And it, 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 that was the film that I first saw, which um, showed the uh, destruction of the towers and how they were destroyed. Or, you know, I think it, it was using the word collapse in um, uh, about eight, eight and ten seconds. And I thought, really? I don't, I don't remember that that being made a significant thing. So um, I went back and I checked the figures again, 8.1 8, 8. and 9 or 10 seconds or something these figures were. And uh, I thought, well, hang on, I, I can check this easily because it's to do with the equations of motion. Um, and uh, and the, the, the simple equation of motion that you use, it's uh, written as S equals UT plus a half AT squared. And this was something that I'd done in a physics class years and years and years ago. Um, and, and U is the initial velocity, T is the time, uh, A is the acceleration. In this case, it's the acceleration due to gravity. So you can you can very simply come out with the figure that um, the towers came down at free fall speed, and uh, and it was pointed out in this film that uh, you know you, you, this could this could not happen, uh, and and of course it, it couldn't happen. Um, there would be some resistance in the structure uh, if these things simply were buckling under the weight of fire. Uh, sorry, buckling with the heat of the fire and the weight of the building, which was what the official story was saying. I th so I, that was really a wake-up call that there was some serious problems with what we'd been presented on 9-11. And, um, you know, I think for for about the next two years, um, I was under the impression, because I didn't know any better at that point, um, that um, th there must have been explosives in the towers that we, we, we you know you used to destroy it, and um, and and that's really the sort of angle I was coming at it from. Um, you know, when these things like the the, the squibs had been pointed out, and you, you, you're told that these are the the uh, the explosive demolition squibs, um, but again, uh, I had to rethink again. You know, and this 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 highlights the idea that it's it's a learning process. It's it's an ongoing learning process, and I think you have to you have to try and keep taking in new information, and, and processing it, and 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 matching it with what you already know, and seeing what needs revision, um, and 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 sometimes you have to accept that you make mistakes, and to to be honest, this is this is a process that you learn quite uh, you, you learn a kind of humility in terms of uh, doing software because when you write in computer programs which get very complicated you can you can convince that you're right and then you, you know you, you can see that your program has a fault in it but you can't see why the fault is occurring and you can look at this thing for days and you can go over it and over it and over it and you can't see your mistake but then eventually somebody will come along and I quite often found that if I was to go through the problem with one of my fellow software people and describe the problem that I was having, the solution would actually pop out and I would see the mistake because I was describing it to someone else. And I would realize that my own, you know, my own thinking was flawed and I had to correct it because if I didn't, then my program wouldn't work and we wouldn't finish the job and we wouldn't get paid. And it's, it's, it's like that with engineering. You have to, you have to look at the problem, break it down. Uh, de design a solution, and then and then revise that solution as you go along. 
Um, so this this again is is a sort of thinking that you can apply to research as well. And you've got to be a bit of a detective in that you know when your program doesn't work. Um, I mean, I spent uh, I once had to debug somebody else's program. And it t- literally took me two weeks to find one small error. I think it was about two weeks I was looking at this thing for. So. You, you, you know, you have to have that level of uh, um, detective work and perseverance to solve these problems. And the thing with you, Andrew, is that, folks, when I asked him what year did he create his uh, microcomputer, back in the early 80s, 80, 81, nobody even imagined what a microcomputer was. I mean, maybe a year or two or three later, we had the Tandy, we had the Commodore, we had the Apple, but you were doing this even before the rest were doing it, when most people were saying, what do we, why do we even need a computer? So you, th- you see things black and white, and what you were saying a minute ago about having a program, and even if one line is incorrect in a program that has taken you months to, to, to mm-hmm. write, just that line can cause the whole program to, to have a different result than what you're looking for. And this is just also the same as what we're looking for here. It took me years after 2001. First of all, I did watch this closure project back in May of 2001. And I think that uh, many people speculate that after 9-11 happened, then, of course, that was overshadowed by the events of that uh, September. But it took me years after that to really start waking up and, and seeing reality. The way it happened to me, one of my brothers in 2003 or four came to me with a uh, PowerPoint of the Pentagon. And when I saw it, that he said, you know, a plane must, could not have gone through this wall. I basically stopped talking to him. I was so brainwashed by mainstream media telling me what to believe that I told him, how dare you imply that our government could do such a thing? But then in silence for, for months and months after that, I started putting all the dots together. I realized that during Hitler's time, there was the Reichstag fire. Well, this was our Reichstag fire, and this is how it all developed to us. But as a computer programmer, you see things black and white, and you seem to be able to connect more dots than, than anybody else. It's been almost 10 years of 9-11. Have you come to, to any new conclusions? Well, I think, yeah, uh, I don't know whether they're new. I mean, uh, you know, as, uh, Dr. Judy Wood really was, was, was the key to, 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 um, to a great deal of this for me. And I think what I found has happened was a lot of things joined up after I started speaking to Dr. Judy. Uh, a lot of things came together. Um, which I'd been separately researching because, you know, as, as, you, as yourself, you yourself know from your own research and the thing, you know, the sort of process you just described a minute ago, you, you, you have to pull in little bits of other areas and then you find that these open out into whole, whole other areas. And, for example, when I discovered the Disclosure Project, I think I heard either of Tesla or I think I'd heard of Tesla before and then I came across Thomas Townsend Brown. Yes. And I thought, thought oh, that's interesting. And I followed that up and I read Nick Cook's book, The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, I'd already seen his uh, 1999 documentary, Billion Dollar Secret. And uh, so that made me realize that there was a connection between the UFO stuff and the anti-gravity research. And um, 
and I found out about John Hutchison. That the 1999 was the first time I ever heard about John Hutchison. It was also in Nick Cook's documentary. So I was aware of the work that he'd done, which seemed to produce some effective levitation. Now at the time, you know, I didn't, I wasn't 100% convinced that what John Hutchison was doing was was real. I, I still wasn't totally sure at that point whether he he was just um, some kind of uh, um, slightly odd guy who'd, who'd said that he'd levitated things when actually he'd got them on strings, you know, somehow or something. At that point, I wasn't really sure. Um, but it was really, uh, I became sure later. Um, and so that, that was one connection point that, that I'd already, you know, for example, in, in 2004, I'd, I'd kind of done the disclosure project, but mainly I was still interested in it. And I put this presentation together on anti-gravity technology. And I actually gave, gave a revised version of this at the conference in Leeds that was organized by Anthony Beckett in August, uh, early this month. In fact, we're still in August. And um, and um, so I, I was able to put the newer stuff in. Um, but basically, Stephen Greer connected the energy issue to the UFO issue as well. And that's interesting because he, he doesn't really talk about that much as much anymore, not as much as he used to. He doesn't really connect the two issues. And when he made that connection, um, that was a that was a, a real big lamp bulb went on in my brain. And he said, the reason why they don't want you to know about the UFO stuff is not really so much about the aliens. I mean, that's only one side of it. The other side is about the energy. Technology. Yeah, and the technology. Because, you know, we, as, as I'm sure many guests who've come on have said already, it's, it's the energy question which is the key to, to, to the way that our world is run. Everything runs on energy. So you control the energy supply and you control the people. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm probably about the hundredth person to say that, if not more, you know, and it's true. And, and uh, so that's why I realized that there was a, this... Uh, um, you know this this connection between the two and that's why one of the reasons for the cover-up and later i wrote to stanton friedman um who i think is a, i think is, a, is i think is a lovely guy and i think he's what he's done with the roswell case and uh, the betty and barney hill case is really you know really interesting and he's got a lot of really good information out there but he kind of shocked me a bit because he, he wrote to me an email and he said uh, i think i'd made the you know, the, the connection to the energy issue. And I'd written to him about that. And he'd said, oh, I think it was a mistake to connect the energy issue to the UFO issue. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, and, and Stanton Friedman worked on, you know, he worked on the NERVA program, the nuclear engined rocket vehicle, um, I think it was the aircraft, I think, or something was the, that's what NERVA stood for. And he worked on that project in the 50s and 60s. So I'm thinking, well, why hasn't made, he made this connection between the propulsion systems of UFOs and the cover-up? You know, and the sources and whatnot. It just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't press him on that. But I bring that up because this, this seems to be starting to play into how the how the cover up works. Because for Stanton Friedman not to be interested in the energy connection didn't didn't, or at least at that time, I don't know whether he's changed his tune since then. Because I'm going back probably till 2004, 2005 when I refer to that message. You know, but this 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 was one of the early indications that something wasn't quite right, and I also at that time uh, wrote to a a, 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 guy, called, a guy called uh, Joe McGonigal, uh, not Joe McMonigal, the remote viewer. There's the another guy. Viewer, in right. the UK. It's not the remote viewer. It's another guy in the UK, and he said he was part of the UK UFO um, uh, forum or something at that time. I forget the exact name for it. 
and he had a web page or a Yahoo group or, or you know, forum or something. And I was writing to him, enthusing about the disclosure project and how good most of the witnesses were and the quality of the information that had come forward with documentation, you know, in the Japan Airlines case and John Callahan and Robert Salas and, uh, and uh, you know, Robert Jacobs and uh, Gordon Cooper and all these other people that we, we know of. And he just said something like, um, oh, well, you know, I, 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 I can disprove 90% of the claims that you make. And I'm thinking, this guy's running a UFO group. Isn't he interested in this stuff? Isn't he, isn't he? Yeah, isn't he interested in the in the connection between the uh, you know uh, UFOs and the energy technology? Very odd, and his, his reaction was quite severe. Um, you know, and, and 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 then I found out later he's associated with this David Clark character who, who's commented recently on the Ren, the Rendlesham case. Rendlesham Force. Yep. Yeah, 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 and we're approaching the thirtieth anniversary of that case, as as you know. Um, and this David Clark character, he, he, he's basically a debunker, and yet he's the person that appears in the UK on all uh, these, um, you know, news news articles. I mean, I got invited to go on Radio Derby to talk about UFOs, and I get there. Uh, it's only about a 10-minute drive from here. Uh, Derby's my local city, and uh, it's where the uh, jet engine was uh, developed, actually, and Rolls-Royce have a big uh, factory here in Derby, so that's what it's famous for. And... Um, I go into Radio Derby, and I, they asked me, because it was one of these UFO document releases they did, I think, about six months ago. And uh, I sit down, and I, and, uh, I, I talk to the, uh, the, the host, uh, Shane O'Connor is his name, and uh, I find they've got David Clark on the line, you know, to, to commenting about this document release. And I'm thinking, what's, what's he doing here? He's not from Derby. He's from Sheffield. It's, this is a local radio station. And he was basically just you know, saying that this document release was virtually of no interest, which I sort of agreed with him, you know, but I was there to comment about the good the good evidence that we've got and the good witnesses, uh, such as, you know, Gordon Cooper reporting about the landing that he filmed at Edwards Air Force Base. So what we're getting is muddling in the scepticism uh, with the good information, the, the information that you can sort of verify with documents and witnesses that are prepared to swear before Congress. I mean, would would David Clark be prepared to swear before a par- parliamentary committee in this country about what he knows? You know, um, I, I don't really see him doing that sort of thing. He doesn't seem to be interested in doing that sort of thing because he's just basically trying to debunk it. Um, so, you know, this this is where I, with, with these sorts of things happening, I realized that there are basically um, people who are pretending to be interested in these topics but actually what they're doing is they're there to steer people in various directions. And certainly with uh, Dr. Judy's research, this was, a, this was probably the most reliable litmus test that I've ever come across. Because, um, uh, you know, you've basically got a large amount of verifiable evidence uh, that, that, that she's compiled, and yet people won't talk about it. Instead, they prefer to talk about some uh, anonymous, uh, you know, FBI whistleblower that comes up with something or or somebody who said they worked for the military at some time. And they they say, for example, I mean, we have this thing with this witness, um, Elizabeth, somebody, and she claimed to have been in a military bunker when the attacks took place. And uh, she came out with this story. This was on Project Camelot 
about uh, over here in a conversation about scrambling the planes or something. And uh, there, there was great interest in this at the time. And I'm thinking, well, why is that particularly interesting? Because the plane stories, um, when you start to study them, tend to sort of fall apart. And we've got the evidence to, to essentially prove that to anyone who wants to examine it closely. Um, you know, so th there seems to be things that spring up like these little honeypots that people are drawn to. And uh, they're not necessarily always untrue as such. It's like, you know, going back to these UFO documents that we've just had released. We've had another release in the UK, I think, um, about uh, three weeks ago. The MOD. The MOD documents, yeah, or the National Archives, I can't remember which. But all, all they basically are is lights in the sky, you know, lights in the sky reports. And, you know, I was at a, 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 I did another talk a few weeks ago at the local group, and I think this subject came up. And I, I'm sort of saying, well, why don't they play Gordon Cooper's testimony, you know, about him filming a landing at, the, at Edwards Air Force Base in 1955? You know... Why don't they show some of the films that Jaime Massan's got, where he's got this, um, he produced, uh, oh, he showed a, an incredible film, uh, I think it was in the 2009 Laughlin Nevada uh, presentation that he did. And I think this was filmed uh, not probably not that far from where you are. And it, I, I've, I've got it on my YouTube channel. It's called, um, I've called it Magnetic UFO. If you If you put into YouTube Magnetic UFO, I think you'll get this clip up. And it's a guy, you know, he's uh, in, in a suburb. I think it's, I can't remember if it's Texas or Arizona, um, one of those states, somewhere around there. And he films this, uh, you know, craft. It's a black craft. It's got a, um, it's like, it looks, sort of looks like um, uh, an inverted type of bottle top, sort of. Close range. He films it for about seven minutes. It's got uh, some lights at the bottom. It's hovering. He zooms in and out. The camera stops working. He, he gets the camera working again. The tape is affected by the magnetic field. You can see the pattern in the uh, in the in the actual video. You can see these like dots coming across, and the tape kind of gets noise bars on it. And Jaime Misan interviews the guy. He, he gives us a testimony about how he took the video. He describes when he took it. He describes the situation. It was half past seven in the morning. He was feeding his dog, you know, and goes out into the back garden. He films it. The tape is taken away to Mexico University. It's analysed, uh, you know, and uh, you see the, uh, uh, the analysis is shown of this uh, magnetic effect on the tape it's you know different to the magnet magnetization of the actual you know information from the uh, camera. actual camera yeah yeah and you and, and they show you a, a a graph of this you know and the guy explains it and, and it's like you know this is about 10 15 minute long presentation by by home i think it's actually 20 minutes long almost so all the detail is there you know, he even states that the university, after Jaime Hassan had made this mini documentary about it, I think he put it on his program that he has down there, you know, because he has this uh, weekly program about the paranormal and stuff. Mexico University said wanted somebody to come on to debunk their own investigation, you know. So these things never get on the mainstream news. 
Uh, you, you know just, what, what you were saying about uh, Stan Friedman, I also find it very hard to believe that he would disconnect these two important aspects, especially when he is a nuclear physicist himself. But I have to tell you, I've had uh, some guests on this show, maybe even one of them said it publicly on the show here, uh, under duress because I asked them. But they have told me they are allowed to talk about UFOs and every light in the sky and ancient archaeology and everything that, that we know about UFOs being around a thousand years ago. However, but when they start talking about the technology, about the anti-gravitics, uh, you have uh, Dr. Paul Aviolette who talks about the Townsend Brown during our show, and we get disconnected 24 times. So mm. obviously, they want to somewhat allow you to talk about these things, but they have people. Let's call them the bunkers. Let's call them whatever. Fill in the blanks. But they go out there, go to conferences. I'm not going to name names. But the moment you start talking about all the these issues that are... Perhaps uh, some people call it national security against national security. That's when they start debunking you. Do you feel that perception from some of the members of the UFO circle? I do, um, very much so. And I think if you watch and listen to the way people say things, you, you know, I, I certainly feel I've picked up on on some of this. Um, and I think, you know, that that sort of brings me into, again, to making connections, because when I, you know, I, as I said before, I'd gone from really from the disclosure project into 9-11 research. And th those were, you know, 9-11 sort of absorbed a lot of my time in the last seven years. Um, and, you know, I was I was thinking there were connections between those two things. I mean, originally, when I came across Dr. Wood's work. And we'd start into corresponding with one another in various ways. I thought that the weapon was probably uh, reverse engineered technology, you know, from from crash craft that people uh, have talked about. You know, and then you've got people like Bill Uhouse who say that he worked with a, a J Rod, you know, an ET. Mm -hmm. And um, then, of course, we have Eisenhower's warning from 1961 about the military industrial complex. So you start connecting these dots and you think, oh, well, maybe they have got this stuff and they have reverse engineered it. Um, but really, uh, you know, I, I began to see how dangerous it was to make connections when 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 Dr. Judy had come across the Hutchison effect connection. That was really the flashpoint. And I'd already come across that, as I mentioned before. And then when she'd put the pictures side by side, of all the Hutchison effect things, you know, and I know she's been on and talked about this and she's, she's the best person to talk about this. To me, it was obvious to me, it was obvious that that's what was used. And again, you know, if you go back and look at, look at the trail, you, you can see things, more thing, things are making sense. And for example, we had Steve Nee Jones came onto the scene and he came onto the scene just after the NIST reports had been published and Steve Nee Jones, for people that are not familiar with this character, he was um, a physicist at Brigham Young University, and uh, he still was at the time he came onto the 9-11 scene. And he did a presentation in February 2006, and uh, we have to we have to point out that he he started displaying emails from this uh, engineer from Clemson who who didn't want to be identified, and. Uh, but he identified her as female for Clemson with a, 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 an engineering degree. 
uh, and that was really enough to get her identified. And then he we, he started uh, um, sort of, you know, he, he we started to find out that he was involved with cold fusion research. And in fact, we've got a clip of him in a, in a year 2000 documentary. Um, and, and, it, and, and it's basically he published a paper on muon catalyzed cold fusion the day before Pons and Fleischmann, the two chemists who broke the cold fusion uh, uh, ice, if you will, and, 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 and had that press conference. And they were criticized for having a press conference instead of uh, publishing a paper in a peer-reviewed journal, which is the way that scientific research is normally, you know, announced, as it were. And um, so he was on the scene then, the day before they were. So that's cold fusion is energy. Uh, and then we find he's involved with 9-11 research, which then turns out to be an energy question because you look at the destruction of the towers and you have to look at the energy change which occurred. And that's when you have to really move to something which is not which is an unconventional technology. So he comes on the scene really, I think, in 2005 because he was a package deal with the NIST reports. In other words, the NIST reports were published. They were 10,000 pages long. The people who published the NIST reports or the people that got them published at that time would have known that there was a lot of information in them. And people who were really interested in what happened could go through those reports and review that information and draw different conclusions to what NIST had. So Stephen E. Jones, essentially, I think, and I can't prove this part, but he, at that, he, was, he was launched at that time so that he would be able to uh, guide those people who are asking questions about the data into his into his you know hypothesis which was thermite so his was the officially the, the official government approved conspiracy theory which was the thermite theory um and this this theory is very useful to the cover-up in other words you you're you're you're, you're presenting people with this idea that no the official story of 9/11 is wrong so you know come to me i'm your friend you 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 know you you skeptic you 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 uh, out of the box thinker come to me because i'm your friend I, I i know what did it i'm a physicist i'm clever you know i've got a phd in physics so you you can trust me i know what i'm talking about and i was I bought into that, you know. I, I helped Stephen E. Jones make a little a video clip about thermite, and that is actually how originally uh, I came into contact with Dr. Judy was because I'd helped um, Stephen E. Jones make a video clip that he was going to use in a PowerPoint presentation um, f about how thermite reaction was seen, a thermite reaction was seen in the destruction of the towers. So he claimed, and I believed him because he was the physicist with a PhD, and I wasn't, frankly. Um, and I was scooped up into this scholars group, uh, which was called Scholars for 9-11 Truth, and I was invited to join that in, uh, let's see, it was uh, December 2005, right at the end of 2005. And I thought, hooray, hooray, the academic community is waking up, and they're going to do something about 9-11, we're going to get a proper investigation and all this, that, and the rest of it. And I was invited to join as a full member uh, to, into the scholars group. I don't have uh, a PhD. I don't have a master's degree. 
Uh, I'm a, a true. I do work for the Open University. I do tutor on a course, but I only have a bachelor's degree, which is uh, about the most basic level you can have for, 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 for you know, tutoring on a, a degree level course. Um, I've never had any papers published. I've never uh, published any, um, you know, academic research uh, that's been, you know, peer reviewed or published in a journal. Um, and so they were breaking their own rules inviting me into the scholars group as a full member i actually wrote to them and said yes i'd like to join the scholars group but i'm only i only fit the bill for an associate member because i'm not a tenured professor but they invited me in as a full member um which was which was slightly odd to some people um and so i you know i should have i should have uh, really sort of paid a bit more attention to that in, in hindsight that this the, something wasn't quite right with that um so at that time when i you know got in touch with them i wasn't aware of Stephen E. jones connection to cold fusion i only found that out i think in um mid 2006 i think i found that out um and i began to realize that the energy issues that dr woodward had raised were very important the most important things and um you know that was that was really another another sort of wake up point where I was beginning to see how people were being herded into a blind alley. That's a good word, being herded, and that's that's if you lead if you lead the opposition your way. And basically, this is what's happening to many of the nine eleven truthers. And I have to mention this: when you mention Dr. Judy Wood or Dr. John Hutchison. And sit back and watch what happens. It's as if you're throwing holy water on a vampire. Many people say, you know, why don't you interview Stephen Jones or some of the others? And I'll be happy, Webster Tarpley, I'll be happy to. I want to listen to everything that they have to say. But there are other shows that do not want to have Dr. Judy Wood. And it really makes you wonder. Because the rest are dealing with theory and speculation. And she's the one dealing with the evidence. So explain to me, Andrew, why is it that so many people are scared of having her on? It's almost as if she's radioactive to the truth movement. And it's, it's very contradicting to me. Yeah, I think, it's, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, I think the, the, the base root one is that she's absolutely correct in terms of... you. You look at the evidence. I mean, it's a bit, you know, if we, if we take a few steps back to where we were and, you, you know, you described to me how, you know, you found out about the Pentagon and at first you just completely refused to look at it. Yes. But when you actually sat down one day and started to look at and work through the evidence, you knew there was a problem. And that evidence that you looked at had to be gathered by somebody. I don't know who it was in that case of that PowerPoint, but, you know, it might have been uh, Gerard Israel, because I don't know, he did a lot of research, of the early research. Um, and it was the same with me. It's the same with the UFO issue. If you actually try and get down to the base evidence and start looking at it, you're going to see there's a problem with what you've been told. So that, because Dr. Judy is, is in that camp, she gives you the evidence. She doesn't really tell you what to think. She just says, here's the evidence. She says, you can see, you know, is this car the right way up or is it upside down and you can't argue with that it, the car can only be either upside down or the right way up so then once you, that fact is pointed out to you then you then you have to explain it and so that really takes you to the base of the problem and you have to think for yourself because 
you know, that proves that what you've been shown is, is a lie. So, so those that want to keep the truth covered up, it's, it's very, very dangerous. So that's one aspect of it. There are, there, are, there are people, there are groups being managed to deliberately keep your eyes away from that. And we, we, we can essentially prove that because of what I just described about Stephen E. Jones. You know, I, I can't prove it, but I would, I, would, I would make a pretty strong bet that Stephen E. Jones know exactly, knows exactly how the towers were destroyed. Because of his associations with Los Alamos National Laboratories, for example, the, 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 and we, we, you know we, we we've all heard uh, that that they they you know are involved heavily with black projects with black programs, and we do know, for example, that that's where the A bomb was. A lot of the A bomb work was done in, in developing that in the in the 40s and 50s. So they have the pedigree for the, for for doing black projects because that project you know has involved 100,000 people, I think it was, and had to be kept completely secret. Obviously, it was a lot easier then because we didn't have the global telecommunications that we have in the way that we have now. Um, so. That's one side of it. The other side of it is is what I've experienced a bit is that, you know, you get into 9-11 issues and you, you, you people are happy with the controlled demolition. The towers were blown up and they've been talking about that for, what, five, six years now, maybe longer even. And uh, if you come along and say, no, sorry, it wasn't controlled demolition, they're going to have a bit of ego about that. And they're going to say, well, why? You know, why? I, I'm, I know I'm right on this because... I, you know, I was fooled by the official story, but now I've, I've woken up. I've, I'm clever enough to have, have, have detected the flaws in the official story. But when you try and present them with the evidence that they've been fooled twice, you know, um, it, it's the, what's that saying? You know, um, fool me once, sh- shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Mm-hmm. I think it's that expression, isn't it? Right. And, 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 and there's an element of that. So there's an element of ego. And so... I think that that comes into play in some of this in that in that people can be you know if people don't take time to look at the evidence then they can be then they can be more likely to be goaded so the the key thing is when you're looking at these forums or these YouTube videos is if you watch for people trying to get you not to look at the evidence or not talk about the evidence I experienced this on a forum the other day where somebody posted something and they were using words like ludicrous. She has a ludicrous theory um, and this sort of thing. Uh, and the, the thing that you often get there is you say, well, if, if, if it's a ludicrous theory, what did it? What have you done to, to, to explain what it, have you right. got a Web page, you know, that you can put up to explain it? And, and the other thing that's been going on with Dr. Judy's research is the, is the continual misquoting of it. And this is also a very, very powerful mechanism. And I, I thought of analogy quite recently, which I think is, is, is fairly easy for people to understand. Now, you know, we've talked already about Steve Nee Jones and his thermite theory and, the, and people like Niels Harriet and, uh, and, and others that have climbed aboard this, this thermite train. Um, now, if Dr. Judy and I were to go around and say, you know what, Steve Nee Jones is, is a bit daft because he says that the World Trade Center was destroyed with dynamite. You know, that that would that would prove that we were being dishonest, because we're smart enough to tell the difference between thermite and dynamite. We know they're two completely different things, and we know perfectly well that Stephen E. Jones did not say that the World Trade Center was destroyed with dynamite. You know, we disagree with his thermite theory because of the evidence, and we we think he's deliberately putting that out as false information. 
because of all the other evidence that we have. But we don't go around misquoting his thermite theory to try and ridicule it. What, and what I'm saying, in other words, is that people like Steve Nee Jones and there are many others, a number of others of these scientists like Niels Harrit, they will say, oh, well, well, Judy Wood talks about space beams. Or, or, or directed energy, uh, sorry, laser, you know, laser beams from space or some other uh, 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 version of that. That is a deliberate misquote. These people are intelligent people. They have a PhD. They can tell the difference between the phrase directed energy weapon and a space beam. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that these people, by apparently waving their hand in the air and, and claiming ignorance or claiming a, a lack of knowledge... It's not good enough. It is not good enough. For them to misquote something like that means they, they are betraying, they have an agenda. And the issue is that people like uh, David Ray Griffin, Webster Tarpley, Dr. Bill Deagle, Alex Jones, they all dismiss the platform of what she's trying to say. They, exactly. they, they debunk her, but they don't explain what is it that they disagree with. They, they, they misquote by saying space beams or, or Marvin the Martian. So that people who listen immediately, who respect that host, they think, oh, well, if so-and-so is saying that, it must be that it must be true. But none of them have been able to look at the evidence. Because if they did, they, I, I, the part that I don't get is why not give her a platform to talk? They're almost like the gatekeepers of the 9-11 truth movement, Andrew. This is the conclusion that I've come to, Mel. You know, I, I don't understand it either. You know, I mean, one of the other things we were going to talk about, I think, um, was the uh, incident on the M6, the the, yes. the, uh, the twins. Now, why I'm mentioning it seems, seems like I'm going way off jumping across topics, but my point is that, you know, I think uh, what we're talking about here is some kind of mind control. Um in, in terms of what people are allowed to, to discuss and speak about in relation to 9-11, I, 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 you know, I've come to the conclusion, I, I can't prove it, of course, but I've come to the conclusion that, that there is mind control being involved because of the way some of these people are behaving. I mean, for example, uh, I'll give you a, a, a you know, specific example from my website. Uh, we had the situation whereby... We had uh, Alfred Weber interviewed uh, Dr. Wood um, at his house, and that was in uh, February 2008. And I had to write an article about this because at that time he seemed to be very uh, interested in the idea that energy weapons had been dis had been used to destroy the World Trade Center. And he actually also had John Hutchison at his house in Vancouver because uh, John Hutchison was in Vancouver at that time, and, and so was Alfred Weber. So they recorded this interview in, in Alfred Weber's house. And went through uh, the, the the connection between the Hudson effect and the uh, destruction of the World Trade Center, and um, Alfred Weber seemed perfectly, you know, interested in this. It was later in the year that he then did a broadcast with uh, with um, another person called Lorraine Murray, who uh, has worked with depleted uranium campaigning, and together they basically did this uh, two or three hour long presentation That's claiming. Yeah, yep, claiming that Harp had destroyed the World Trade Center. And at one point in the interview, um, Lorraine Murray, he, Alfred Weber said to Lorraine Murray, he said, um, so tell me what, what uh, made you think that uh, Harp destroyed the World Trade Center? And she says, well, it was really the uh, research or evidence, I can't remember which word she used, uh, compiled by Dr. Judy Wood, which mm. you know made me uh, draw this conclusion. And he then said, 
uh, in your own words, without mentioning Dr. Judy Wood, why do you think Hart destroyed the World Trade Center? And, and then she she kind of acceded to his request to not mention Judy Wood. <laughs> so so anyway, I I had had to write that up in an article because that seemed just blatant to me, you know. And so I wrote this up into an article. It's on my website and people can go and read it. And I've linked in all the audio clips. So in other words, you don't have to take my word for, you know, what I'm saying that they, I, that they said that you can actually hear them saying it. I've got the recording. I saved it on my website so you can hear the exact words, the exact phraseology, the exact context to check that, you know, I'm not taking them out of context. You can listen to all that. Now, that article was posted on my website for about a year. And bizarrely, Alfred Weber actually linked the article from one of his own blogs. And it really isn't a complimentary article to him. It's, it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not nasty to him. I'm just presenting what he said at one time, then how he changed it, and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then about, about, I don't know, four or five months ago, earlier this year, I got, a, uh, in fact, Dr. Judy received an email from him saying uh, that I had to, they this libelous article should be removed and he didn't he didn't send the email to me even though my email address is linked at the top of the article and it's easy to find on my website um, and he, he did paste this email into my Skype window I think the following day or, or a few hours later after he sent it to Dr. Judy so I wrote the article I posted it on my website it had been there for a year he threatens me with libel but he doesn't send me the email message I mean is this normal behavior? I mean, that, that's my question. And this is why I'm bringing up this, 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 this idea of, is there some type of influence going on here? Is this, that's affecting, or is it just me? You know, maybe I'm the one that's uh, not behaving normally. I don't know. Well, the strange thing is that I know Alfred and he's also organizing the international court to prosecute uh, the likes of Cheney, Rumsfeld, etc., for crime against humanity. So, I wonder if there's a confusion or, or if uh, some of the information that he may not be aware of, of, of Dr. Wood's uh, analysis and research, he may be, I, I, I just I just can't comprehend why he would all of a sudden switch this way and, and tell the uh, guest of his show, not to mention Dr. Wood. Yeah, well, I mean, neither, you know, you know, Mel, I mean, he, he he's not explicitly given any reason to me. He hasn't said, well... I'm sorry about this, uh, or, you know, he, he hasn't, for example, sent me another link to another broadcast he did at another time where he's, you know, shall we say, smartened up his act and, 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 and realized his mistake or whatever it is. He didn't send me any of that. He basically just attacked me in this email, and this was a year later, for mm -hmm. goodness, goodness sake. So I, I don't have an answer to, to the point you just raised, except to me, I, I, to my answer, you know, may be wrong, but I, I believe he's been given instructions. I believe he is uh, another character who has been um, uh, given the task of muddying the waters deliberately. That's what it looks like to me, because, again, going back to this, uh, this thing about misquoting and knowing the difference between dynamite and thermite, etc., etc., Alfred Weber is an intelligent person. If you read his articles... And, and, and like you're saying, to, to try and organize this international human rights uh, prosecution with Cheney and everything, you, you know, you've got to be pretty smart to try and get something like that underway. This, this man is not stupid. 
you know, and I would say the same of people like Jim Fetzer, who I'd have, I've had to write about. Jim Fetzer um, has done a similar thing with the 9-11 research, or seemingly as far as from what I've documented. And he invited me into the scholars group along with Steve Jones, who invited me. And then Fetzer invited me onto the steering committee of the scholars group. I mean, why, why are you going to invite somebody who hasn't had any academic published research onto the steering committee of a, of a, a scholars for 9-11 truth group? You know, it, it, when you've got all these other people to choose from, it just doesn't make any sense. Because, Andrew, you are a threat to them, and they want to keep you on their side because uh, they know that it's better to have somebody like you with them than out there on the loose, being uh, a loose cannon that's going to start uh, revealing some of the things they don't want revealed. Well... I have to be honest and say, I think that's a perfect summary of uh, the conclusion that I came to. Um, so I think that again illustrates how the infiltration works. Now, the way it works is very subtle because I think another point that comes up, and if you you read what what I've written about uh, Fetzer, in fact I've I've written this book. Um, it's actually I call it a book, but it's actually a compilation of articles because I started. When I first came into contact with Dr. Judy Wood in the late 2006, you know, and I began to see how she was doing things and the sorts of things she was presenting, I knew it was very, very important. And when I saw her starting to be attacked in 2007, particularly with this uh, Dr. Greg Jen Jenkins interview, which is repeatedly rolled out on the forums as some kind of um, judgment of, of Dr. Wood, it's still being rolled out three years later, three years after it happened, almost three and a half years after it happened. And I wrote an article about that to document the actual circumstances under which that interview took place. And I kept doing that over the period. I kept writing these articles about the latest, you know, sort of uh, um, misdirections and herding operations that were going on. And we eventually found out, for example, that uh, Jim Fetzer was making threats, Ace Baker was making threats, Ace Baker was another 9-11 researcher who'd done um, research into the video fakery that appears to have been used on most of the news broadcasts, uh, which again is something that people rarely seem to talk about um, as a whole other aspect. And another friend of mine, Richard Hall, has just produced a video about that as well, which is very interesting. Um, and so I, I, I started to write all this stuff up, and people can read that on my website. It's a free download. It's called 9-11 Finding the Truth. I've made it into a video. I've made an audio book. I've made it a PDF file. If you want to get a paperback, you can, but, you know, you have to pay for that because it costs money to print those, but I don't get any of money course. from it. Um, and so all that information is, is available you know, I've I've got the same approach as, as Dr. Judy in terms of here's the information, here, it's on the website. I've tried to organise it as best I can. You know, like yourself, Mel, I've got to earn a living, I've got family to look after and everything. So you know, it might not be perfect. It might not be the best organised. It might have a few rough edges here and there. But you know, I've done the best I can in the time that I have. And um, if you want to find the story. Go, go and read the story, and and, and I think it illustrates um, how the cover-up is being managed. And, and and you know, I'll just bring up the other point is about fights. Now, what Fetzer did, for example, a lot. If you read what it what what's in the in the articles that I post, he started fights between people. In other words, he'd, he'd accuse people. He accused me of being childish when I presented him with the uh, conclusion that the Hutchison effect was real. 
uh, and it was important in relation to the destruction of the World Trade Center. I'd got documents that somebody had sent me. I got documents which were sent to me by a chap in Scotland, and he'd done a freedom of information request to Los Alamos National Labs, uh, and he was able to get a disclosure from them that they had indeed uh, had a team go out from Los Alamos to visit John Hutchison in 1983. And indeed, this is no secret because Colonel John Alexander, who's the head of the non-lethal weapons program, um, uh, he, he actually admits freely that he went to see John Hutchison. They, he, he stayed there for four months. So we already have that connection to Los Alamos and John Hutchison. And we have the connection of Steve Nee Jones and Los Alamos uh, as well. And we have the connection of Steve Nee Jones and cold fusion, which cold fusion is another energy phenomenon. And then as Dr. Judy found out, you look at who wrote uh, the uh, NIST reports. And we have uh, Boeing, uh, ARA, Applied Research Associates. And um, we have Science Applications International Corporation, who, again, I'd already heard of because of the Disclosure Project, because Stephen Greer had said that Science Applications International Corporation are one of the big benefactors of the black budget. They, they, they get hundreds of millions of dollars, and nobody can tell you what they do with these dollars. So all those things linked up, uh, and, and those three companies, ARA, Boeing, and SAIC, or do research into directed energy weapons, or they manufacture components, or they manufacture systems. You know, Boeing have, uh, have um, just uh, done another test of the airborne laser, which all they were going to, but I think it got aborted. Uh, they worked on that. Then you find other connections, like um, I, what I found. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Norma, Norma Minetta. Do, do you know of Norma course, Minetta? Of course. Okay, and you know you know about the famous story of him kind of saying Chenny was in the bunker and uh, Chenny refused. Stand down, stand yeah. down. Yes, you know absolutely. That story? Sure. Um, well, do you know where Norman Minetta used to work? Hold on, let's hold it right there because we have to take our one and only break. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned uh, your website once again. Checktheevidence.com. Correct. Yes, that's correct. We have to take a quick break. I was going to stop the 9-11 discussion, but there's so much more that we need to discuss. And incidentally, since you spoke about Richard Hall, I want to talk about that video that he produced where you see that uh, what looks to be a, an anti-gravitic object moving towards the towers. I want to talk about that, but I want you to tell me also about Norma Mineta when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. I'm here with Andrew Johnson. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
this is Dr. Stephen Greer, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.